welcome to the Latinx Kidlit Book Festival podcast. This is season one, episode 13, Latinx Enough, with authors Jen Cervantes, Ruth Vihar, David Bowles, and Yesenia Moises. Enjoy the show. everyone. Thanks so much for being here. I'd like to welcome you to the first ever Latinx Kidlit Book Festival. I am JC Cervantes, the author of the Stormrunner series and other books for young readers. And before we begin, and I introduce this panel of incredible authors, I would like to point your attention to the anti-harassment policy. So please read that policy, which is in the chat box. All right, so let's get started. First, I would like to introduce David Bowles, David Bowles is a Mexican-American author and translator from South Texas. Among his award-winning titles are The Smoking Mirror and the critically hailed They Call Me Widow. David's work has also been published in multiple anthologies plus venues such as The New York Times, School Library Journal, Strange Horizons, English Journal, Rattle, Translation Review, and the Journal of Children's Literature. In 2017, David was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters. In 2020, he co-founded Hashtag Dignidad Literaria, a social justice movement advocating for greater Latinx representation in publishing. Welcome, David. Hello. Our next author is Ruth Behar. She was born in Havana, grew up in New York, has lived in Spain and Mexico, and has returned to Cuba to build bridges around culture, literature, and art. Behar won the Puro Belpre Author Award for her middle grade novel, Lucky Broken Girl. Her new novel, Letters from Cuba, a work of historical fiction, is based on her grandmother's escape from Poland to start a new life in Cuba on the eve of World War II. Her first picture book, Tia Fortuna's New Home, we published in 2022. Behar was the first Latina to win a MacArthur Genius Grant and has been named a great immigrant by the Carnegie Corporation. She is the, the uh, Victor Haim Pereira Collegiate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Welcome. Yesenia Moises is an Afro-Latina author and illustrator and raised in the Highbridge neighborhood of the Bronx. After graduating from the internationally renowned Fashion Institute of Technology with a BFA in toy design, she set off on a journey to show marginalized youth that they too can live in a world full of wonder and magic. Her work has been featured on BuzzFeed, Sci-Fi, and NBC News, and on the pages of publishers like DC and Image. Her designs have become toys that are loved and enjoyed by kids around the world. In a time where the world can be a scary place, she wants it to be filled with big hair, bright colors, and lots of sazon from the heart. Welcome everyone. I am really excited to be here today and to have this conversation. I think that there's so much value to this conversation and to hear from all of you is gonna be such a very meaningful experience for me and for the audience and for others watching. So I wanna start off with the first question and we'll start with Ruth, if that's okay. What does Latinx enough mean to you? Oh dear, it's hard to be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure. I think it means that you are trying to see how to embrace this identity. There's sort of no way to be the perfect Latinx person, right? Uh, you know, we all are a mix, I think, of different cultures and identities and 
histories. So I go with the idea that if you think you are Latinx, you are. Awesome, David. Yeah, I mean, I would, um, you know, dovetail with that and say that kind of in addition to like, if you feel Latinx, then, then you likely are Latinx. It's not something that's going to occur except in a, a few interesting cases to just like random people. Hey, I'm Latinx, right? Um, it, but in that feeling of being Latinx or being Mexican-American or Dominicana, Cubana, or whatever it happens to be, usually arises from the fact that you were raised in a family or a community um, that you know, embraces that identity as well, or that you have ancestors that do. Because sometimes what happens is, you know, Latinx people um, will have descended from people from Latin America, but because of different forces of colonization and, and so forth, will have spent their childhood and their adolescence um, outside of the influence of those cultures, except for the othering that happens to them. And so a lot of people then, when they get to college um, or, or, or later in life, come to realization that they, that they need to rediscover those roots and they, they need to embrace that. And I think that's a beautiful thing as well. And I would never wanna hold that against somebody that they come to the Latinx identity much later in life than other people who were like raised in that tradition. So, I mean, I think that it's got to be ample enough um, to fit those different possibilities in. Senia? Wow, wow, I'm supposed to follow up after that. <laughs> um, for me, I think it definitely like piggybacking off of David, it just has a lot to do with like your upbringing and like if you do feel like you are Latinx enough, then that's what it should be like i struggled a whole lot with that growing up more so because well i don't look like what you expect a typical latinx person to look like you know if you're going based on the telenovelas that you see on tv like so if you feel it i think that is that is what it is then yeah no, i i think that's 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 true i mean that at the end of the day you feel it, right? And who's going to gainsay? Who's going to contradict you? And anybody who has the like audacity to say, "No, I, I, I don't think you're right," that should just shut the shut up. Basically. Yeah, yeah, it becomes <laughs> this weird sort of competition for brownie points that I don't think is very productive to anyone's well-being, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. Yeah. Well, I guess that that's kind of a good segue to the next question, which is how are you incorporating your Latinx heritage into your work as artists, as creators? Should I start again? Start again. Well, I'm incorporating it in, in many ways in Lucky Broken Girl, which is a more autobiographical story. I was trying to tell about a Cuban-American family coming to the United States in the 60s, so kind of drawing on my own background and my own heritage to create that character, to create that story. And now in the most recent one, in Letters from Cuba, I'm drawing on my grandmother's story it's not exactly her story, but it's inspired by her journey from Poland to Cuba. So I'm drawing very directly on family history, stories that I heard growing up, things I witnessed uh, myself and being a child immigrant myself, drawing on that immigrant 
experience. And um, I think I have felt very charged up um, by the immigrant crisis in particular and felt that it was something that I could speak to having been a child immigrant myself. And, um, and I just felt that I wanted to add this story to, to the mosaic of stories uh, that exist about Latinx uh, immigrants. So, so I'm drawing very directly on my heritage, but also on research that I've done because I also do research for my books, particularly the letters from Cuba, where I had to research the whole historical period of the 30s um, in Cuba and in Europe. So that also becomes a part of the work. Yeah. Senia? Well, for me, I definitely take a lot of inspiration from, you know, just the bright and bold colors you see in a lot of Latin countries. Like when I used to go to the Dominican Republic with my family, I would always be amazed at how the people over there were just so fearless about wearing these very contrasting like color combinations that, you know, if you wore them here, people would look at you funny, like, what are you doing? But over there, it was just so normal. And I think the fearlessness and wanting to express yourself through color is something that I aim to incorporate into my work. And also like in my next book that's coming out in January, Stella Stella Hair, like it's about a young black girl that's, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to do her hair with like the help of like her aunties. But like each of the aunties in that story are actually, you know, named with you know, very Latinx sounding names, just to sort of normalize that, you know, there are people that have darker skin that do have, that, you know, are of Latin heritage. Because mm -hmm. I don't think you see a whole lot of that. Like, I don't think, you know, people expect someone like me to, you know, be able to fluently speak Spanish or, you know, have a mom that's like, you know, is very fair skinned and looks like, you know, the people you do see on like TV and the news reports and whatnot. Well, so I, I just try to incorporate a lot more of that, you know, into my work, you know, in ways that, you know, aren't very overt so that they don't seem like, you know, forced or out of place, just normal. They're just like part of the world, right? And I mean, to me, that's really important as well. Like all of my books are centered pri primarily in, in the Mexican-American community of South Texas. But I mean, there are, are there's a diversity here as well. So in my book, they call me Güero, the, the main character who's a light-skinned Mexican-American with like freckles and red hair or whatever. Um, his his friend um, Bobby Delgado is Dominican. I have several um, Dominican American friends down, that live down here in South Texas. In fact, so our closest friends run a, a chain of um, dry cleaning stores, and, and they're from the Dominican Republic, and they're just wonderful people. And um, another one of his friends is half Mexican American, half white. Um, in the book, um, in the new, in my new chapter book series, Thirteenth Street, you have these three cousins. Um, their moms are all sisters, but the sisters all married men from different backgrounds. So there's um, Malia Malapata, whose whose mom is Mexican American, but whose dad is Dominican. And then um, Ivan Eisenberg's dad is a Jewish American, and um, Dante's his dad is Mexican American. So I wanted to show the diversity because, like, my own family is that way. Um, you know, I have. You know, Mexican American uh, parent and a white parent. My brother Fernando has uh, the Mexican American parent and a black parent, so he's Afro Mexicano. And 
um you know and then my other brother is is like even lighter skin than i am it's and among my cousins were like all these different tonalities. It's one of the things that like really irritated me, for example, about the book American Dirt, where uh, there's a scene um, where the, the main character and her son, who are lighter skinned Mexicans, arrive at the border uh, and they're accompanied by these other children and a woman who are like darker skin. And and the, the idea of presenting themselves as all one family um, the writer says, you know, oh, that doesn't work because we're light skin and you're dark skin, but that flies in the face of the way families actually are, because most Latinx family have the, the you know, el güero, el, el blanco, el moreno, la, 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 la perlada. I mean, there's like, <laughs> like with your own children, my children I have, uh, my oldest daughter is like very dark skin. My middle daughter is very fair. And then my son is kind of in between. It's just, it's, you know, you never know. It's kind of a crapshoot. The kids come out and you're like, ah, okay, that's what colors <laughs> you have. Um, and it's a, I think it's a beautiful thing. And yes, there's a lot of colorism that complicates uh, that. And there's, you know, I, I grew up in a community where it was always like, ah, mira el güero, que bonito. And, you know, and, and like then putting down darker skinned kids. And, and that's a shame. But um, the, the fact of growing up in that culture and, and the way that we're trying to fight against colorism and embrace all these different potentialities, all these ways of being Latinx, I think is wonderful. And I want that to be shown in my books. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to hear everyone's take on, on that question, because I think you're right. I think that you have this full range. And I think that that speaks to um, one of the questions we have so many, but I'm going through them. And one of the questions I'd really like to hear um, you all answer is, is rethinking our history an important part of your work as a Latinx writer? And if so, how have you used historical fiction or other genres to bring historical perspectives into your storytelling? Um, why don't we start with David this time? Well, yeah, I mean, to me, just because of what I went through when I got to college and realized that like my Mexican-American heritage had been essentially erased, even though I was in a school like five minutes from Mexico in classrooms of Mexican-American kids with teachers who were Mexican-American. Um, you know, it wasn't until I got to college that I started learning like the history of the Mexican-American people, the history of Mexico, the history of Mesoamerica. And so I kind of like, you know, went down a rabbit hole of study and came out the other side, like wanting to to share what I had discovered with young people who would otherwise probably not get that. And so, you know, I've, a lot of the work that I've done has been about retelling myths and legends or incorporating um, that history into into uh, works. I just finished writing uh, a, um, a young adult historical fiction, well, magical realist historical fiction um, romance with uh, Guadalupe Garcia McCall um, that features, you know, the, the Nahuatl cultures like right around the time of the conquest. Um, and I just think it's it's really important that we, that we look into those roots and especially, you know, kind of de-center the European side. I don't believe in throwing it out, but like de-centering it so that it's not the main thing. And then and centering more uh, or ha giving equal share or whatever it happens to be to our indigenous and African heritage as well, because all these things blend together in the Latinx community in nearly every Latin American country. I mean, there are some that have like a little bit less indigenous or a little bit less African um, heritage, but for the most part, 
every single Latin American culture because of colonization and the enslavement of people from Africa um, have those heritages. And, and I think it's important that that those three aspects of Latinx identity be on an even keel. And in fact, we probably have to like push down on the European part and, and, and lift up indigenous and African heritage just in terms of equity because they've been, you know, demeaned for so long that they need to be in the spotlight as much as we possibly can make it happen. Yeah, and I think too, you know, speaking to that is when you look at, so for example, I was born and raised in Southern California. And when I look at my education now as an adult, you know, post-university, I feel a little bit um, mournful that uh, my education, my his history education, world history education really didn't focus on any of that. And actually I didn't get any, not even, not even a pinch of it. And so it's so disappointing to me now as an adult because it was very central to the um, Anglo-European um, history, especially as it relates to this country. Uh, Yesenia? Okay, I'm unmuted, all right, cool. Um, so a lot of my work is a lot more fantasy-based and doesn't really draw as much on history. So, well, I will say that one of the things that drew me to the first book that I worked on, Honey Smoke, since you know I worked in the picture book space more so than prose, is that the author was writing about her daughter, essentially, who was you know a mix of her and her husband who was white while she herself was black. And that story really spoke to me because growing up, you know, I always felt like I had to choose between one or the other because just based on my appearance alone, like, you know, people would see me as, you know, well, you're dark skinned, so you're black, right? And then they hear me speak Spanish and they're like, so then are you Spanish though? It would be this weird sort of, you know, I have to pick one side or the other. And, you know, I re it, that caused me to really want to go into the realm of fantasy because I felt like, you know, being able to escape a little and see a world beyond your own is really helpful to young children. And I wanted to show them something that's so much more than them, you know, being crushed by some harsh realities at such a young age. Cause they think that's what does, you know, do things like kill imagination or, you know, make someone, you know, give up on their dreams. So I just try to not so much draw on history, but to, you know, inspire kids to see something beyond their surroundings. Yeah, that's beautiful. Ruth? Yeah, that's really beautiful, Yesenia. And I have a kind of interesting parallel maybe to you in that, of course, I'm also Jewish. And so that's often an issue for, for people who don't know that there are Jews who have lived all over Latin America um, forever, but a lot of people don't know that and they have an image of what a Jewish person is or should be and kind of like you, I speak Spanish fluently. I grew up speaking Spanish. I was born in Cuba. I speak Spanish every day to my parents. And um, so, you know, that's very much a part of my life, but a lot of people don't understand that that combination exists or that diversity exists. So, so that's where you know, a lot of my issues around authenticity come up, but it comes up with people who just don't know that 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 way of being um, Latino or Latinx exists, right? So, um, so with the work that I'm doing, I feel like 
I, I don't want to say I'm on a mission because that seems too strong. But I'm a bit on a mission to, you know, to bring the, the Jewish Latinx experience into children's literature. And, and that does um, require, I think, rethinking history. And, you know, I feel that the history that's taught in school to kids is way behind the history as it's actually being lived. Um, and so, so we really need to kind of help them catch up to the more complex history that actually is being lived. So, so I'm interested in part in lived history, like history as it's lived in the present, but I'm also interested in history of the past and how that informs the present as well. So with Lucky Broken Girl, I was kind of re, um, rethink, excuse me for a moment, rethinking my, uh, my own history of growing up um, in the 60s in New York and what that was like and what New York was like then. And I grew up, um, rather than in the Bronx, I grew up in Queens, which is also a very, very diverse borough with over 130 languages are spoken um, in Queens. So I was very aware of this diversity and I wanted in some way to, um, to create a historical account of the 60s that would show that mix of different cultures that, that I grew up with. So the, you know, the main character is a Jewish Cuban girl, but she's surrounded by people from many different places. There's a Mexican neighbor, there's neighbors from India, her friend is, best friend is from Belgium. So there's this mix of people coming together. And I felt that I wanted to create a world where kids could see that history and could see that mix of people coming together and being able to intersect with one another and understand one another. And now with Letters from Cuba, um, you know, uh, David was talking about the importance of the indigenous presence in our history and also the, um, you know, the African presence. And you've been talking about that too, Yesenia. And in writing Letters from Cuba, um, one of the things I wanted to show was how this Jewish girl arrives from Poland in the late 1930s. She goes to live in a small town, a small town where my family actually lived, where my mother's family lived in the countryside, a sugar growing um, town. And they were the only Jewish family there. And so they intersected with people who were Afro-Cuban and also Chinese Cuban, and of course, Spanish Cuban. And I wanted to show all of that in the novel, like how these different cultures intersected with one another and kind of rethink history from the perspective of intersections, not from the perspective of each group is isolated in its own community, but rather you know, we intersect with one another. And I saw that, you know, in rethinking kind of this history from the 30s that these different communities intersected with one another. And we need to see, I feel like we need to see um, our history or at least part of our history as being um, about these kinds of intersections and crossings um, between cultures and between people and, and how people translate for one another and get to know each other's cultures, um, which is what happens with, with Esther. Um, in my novel where she gets to know about um, Cuban um, Santeria culture, for example, because her friend Manuela, her grandmother is a Santera, and so she, she gets to know about that whole religious culture. Um, and it doesn't scare her. It isn't something that, that she can't be a part of. She can, she can participate and still be this Jewish girl in Cuba from Poland, but she can also participate in this other culture and people can come to understand and respect each other's cultures. So why do you think, I mean, this is kind of, you know, going off of what we've been talking about. Why do you think um, 
there is such a disconnect for so many people. And we'll just, let, let's just stick to the United States right now. When, when you look at our geographic region, why do you think that there's such a disconnect in terms of, you know, Ruth, you're talking about intersections, we're talking about, you know, how various heritages defy expectations on what we're supposed to look like and the languages we're supposed to speak and, you know, the religions we're supposed to practice, which hopefully I can get to that question too. But why do you think that is? Why do you think that you talk about being on a mission. Why do you think that that work is, I mean, we know that it's it's necessary, but why do you think that so few people understand or know or um, can relate to these vast differences? I mean, it just, I think the knowledge base is very small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think part of the problem, uh, I'm sorry, I just, an idea popped in my head and so I wanted to jump in. Um, one of the things that I'd like to point out is that there are two different forces, right? There's the the outside force that others us and wants to to make us homogenous, right? That says, uh, let's you know, let's just paint all Latinx people with this with a single broad brush, like what was happening with the election returns um, mm -hmm. you know, a few weeks ago, uh, where people were like, what, what's going on with Latinx people, and we're all like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm sorry, but like what Cubans in Miami do is not like this with the rest of us. Um, so there's that because it's just so much easier because we have chosen to to accept the majority of us, an umbrella term that encompasses all of us and allows us to stand in solidarity with with our like hermanos and our, our primos, right? With with the people that are here in this country um, and that that need to stick together to fight the good fight. Um, you know, the, the outside the, misuses that term and, mis, and, and misunderstands our identity. And it's just easier for them and um, they don't have to like think about it very hard. And then there's this internal pressure as well. Um, like I think about, I was just getting into an argument on Twitter, right? Again, like for the, I don't know, 25th time or something like that about the word Latinx and people who are like, well, you know, the majority of, of gente Latina doesn't want to use the, and I'm like, look, I know that there's also this internal pressure where people in our community are like, you need to be a certain way. You need to be, you're Mexican American, you need to be Catholic and this and that and politically aligned to this and you should not be queer because that's, we don't really like that. And, and so we have internal pressures to try to make everybody be you know Latinx according to a certain model, and then you have external pressures that other us into that, and it's it's very difficult. And when in reality, there are as many ways of being Latinx as there are Latinx individuals, and you can't. There's no des description you can use that fits us all. It, it's just silly to even attempt it. Yeah, yeah. Ruth or Yesenia, do either of you want to say anything to that? Speak to that? Sure, sure. Um, so there was a very, very brief moment in time where I would, um, you know, go and be cast as like audience members for like various things, just for fun, you know, when I was younger. And I would rem I remember seeing, you know, some casting calls where they would ask specifically for like, you know, someone who looks, you know, Hispanic or Latin American. And I would always wonder, like, you know, what what are they referring to? And, you know, what is this particular look that they're asking for, right? And I think it's it has a lot to do with the media that is on, like, you know, the, our largely, like, you know, Spanish, you know, speaking networks where 
you know, you see more, more often than not people that are of fair skin, you know, they're the newscasters, they're the talk show hosts, they're the people like, you know, in the telenovelas or variety programs, like you don't really see folks that, you know, show more of the range that is actually in, you know, a lot of Latin American countries. And that ends up being reinforced at home with families too. And, you know, I do wish that there was something more that, you know, we could do for media. Aside from just, you know, working on books, I think there's something that you can, we should be able to do to help a lot of people, you know, who, you know, might be, you know, darker skinned like me or like, you know, mestizo where they're like a lot more brown in like Mexico and things like that. Because Latin Americans in general or Latinx people, they just, they don't all fit into one single mold. Yeah, definitely. Ruth, did you have anything to say? Yeah, I can just add something to that. That I mean, I think a lot of these categories, I mean, as human beings, we, we need categories in order to understand things. We sort of, that's like the way we figure things out. So categories are just sort of part of the way human beings think, but we can definitely expand and stretch the categories and question the categories. And um, I think as Yesenia said, you know, our, our books are helping to do that. And certainly the media is changing its perception of Latinx people to some extent. And for me, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I, I always felt that, that the categories in the United States were so strict as to what it meant to be Latina or Latino. But then when I started traveling to Cuba, that's what really reaffirmed for me this, this the sense that, yeah, of course, of course you're Latina. You know, there I met people believe it or not, who, who knew me as a child <laughs> in Cuba, you know, like old friends of my parents and so on. And like, of, you know, of course you're part of this, you know, we remember your whole family in Cuba. Like, of course you're Cuban, of course you're Latina. You know, it was like, I was like going like to sort of ask them like, you know, am, am I one of you or not? You know, and they were like, of course you are like, don't be silly. This is, this is insane. Um, and so I think, you know, it may be that our categories in the United States are, more restricted and of course we've got the census categories and stuff and and I feel like when you go to you know to Latin America whether it's like Cuba itself where I'm from or other places that I've traveled in Latin America Mexico Argentina and other places where I've also lived um, I feel like they're actually their categories are more expansive than our categories here in the United States yeah yeah I, I would say that that's true um, one of the questions I think is um, is really interesting because I don't think that it is something that comes up a lot in kid lit, at least not in an on, on your nose, you know, way. So what role do you think spirituality and religion play in Latinx identity? And how might we write about these subjects in ways that can inspire kid friendly conversations? Um, Ruth, you want to start that one? Um, well, I'm I'm very interested in religion and spirituality, and I think it's something important for kids to know about and to think about in different kinds of ways. Um, and um, so I, you know, I try to bring that into the two books I've I've written, um, and to think about religion and spirituality separately a little bit. I feel that in Lucky Broken Girl, the character of Ruthie is is very spiritual character and she's you know not just a jewish girl she's kind of like 
a girl who's trying to understand spirituality and she's going through a very hard time. So she's in this body cast and, you know, can't move for a year. So she's going through some really horrible experiences and it's forcing her to think about, well, does God exist? You know, who's going to help me get out of this terrible situation? <laughs> you know, I'm stuck in bed. Am I ever going to walk again? And I feel like that situation put her into a place where she had to think about the spiritual. And so she's writing letters to God, but then she starts writing to Frida Kahlo and going, well, maybe Frida, the spirit of Frida can help me. She's been through something um, like this. And she writes um, also to um, to other, other spirits of, um, of other religions as well. And I wanted in that book to kind of explore how a child might think about spirituality before you know, their categories get too hardened and I'm, you know, I'm Catholic or I'm Jewish or I'm whatever, you know, I wanted her to be this 10 year old child who's kind of exploring, you know, the possibility of, you know, of being helped by different deities. It doesn't have to be just one. Yeah. Um, so, so I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and then in Letters from Cuba, um, there I really explored much more this convergence of religions and cultures, Yoruba, um, religion in Cuba and Chinese uh, Cuban culture and religion and then Jewishness and and in letters from Cuba Esther invites these friends that she's made from these different communities she invites them to her Passover Seder and her father is saying um, is this a good idea <laughs> you know because he's used to you know, to the idea that Jews only do this with each other but Esther has this other idea that she can invite people of other religions to join in in the celebration of this Seder. And so, so I was kind of exploring that and I, and I hope opening a door for kids to think about religion and spirituality in more creative ways. Yeah. Isenia, you wanna to speak to that? Okay, well, I do think that um, in Latinx culture, there's, there is, you know, this very strong sense of, you know, religion. For me, and you know, growing up with family that was from the Dominican Republic, you know, there's a very strong sense of like, you know, having to adhere to Catholicism or um, whatever other religions that are, you know, region specific to where your family's from. And I think that incorporating that into literature, like, how you could go about that would be, you know, finding ways to show more of a uh, more family oriented ways of doing it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And David? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say for me too, uh, definitely. Um, I was. When I started writing for kids, I I wanted to um, push back against the glaring absence of religion and spirituality in the majority of the the kid lit that that I had read to my kids, um, and definitely I, I I was like I can't write about Mexican American young people without writing about you know Catholicism and other types of spirituality, indigenous and, and Protestant and so forth, and um, and so I, I just just unashamedly included in my book, and I know that. One of the many things that was tough about shopping the smoking mirror around and getting it published was, you know, pushback from from agents who were rejecting it. That, in addition to just having too much Spanish and too many weird um, indigenous uh, names of of deities, you know, there was just a lot of like religious 
thought in as well. These two twins are Catholic and they respond to things in ways that Catholics would respond to things. And it was, it's, you know, for people who are not used to that, it's jarring to them and they think it's unmarketable or whatever. But I think that in, you know, the past 10 years, we've seen that beginning to change and, and they're just more and more, you know, Latinx and, and, and books by other communities of color that include a lot more spirituality. And, and they call me Wedo. One of Wedo's, you know, main things is like just his life in the church and, um, and the sequel that I'm writing to it, there's, it, it, that just gets even bigger in his relationship, his adoration of the, the Virgin of Guadalupe and so forth. It, becomes uh, one of the many strands in that book as well. So I think it's important. It reflects the reality of, of the kids that that we're writing for and about. Yeah, and it's a complex question. I appreciate um, all of your answers. And I, I think that um, we see the intersections there too, that it's not just one defined religion. Okay, so let's start with the first student question. And it is from Anthony L, sixth grader from California. Hi, my name is Anthony. My question for you is, are the gods in your story based on real gods, like from Greek mythology, or did some of them, did you make them up? Well, um, I know that you do a lot of mythology um, work, David, and I know I do a lot of mythology work. So do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, totally in the guys with twins and, and other books where I'm pulling from, from mythology, I'm almost always pulling from, you know, Mesoamerican mythology. So it's like Aztec and Maya. Um, and for the most part, you know, I just pull those deities and, and I tweak them and, and adjust them and, and make them behave in ways that are convenient for my plot or whatever. You're <laughs> <laughs> staying largely faithful to their identity, but yeah, I mean, they are real gods for the most part. And, um, um, at least up to this point, I haven't, as far as deities are concerned, I've, I've, I've created like new supernatural beings who are maybe not deities, but are associated with them. But for the most part, the gods themselves tend to be the, the actual gods. Yeah. What about you, Jen? Oh, I, um, I created a deity. Absolutely. You mean the, I write about Mesoamerican mythology as well. And in the Stormrunner series, um, in my research, I was really fascinated and surprised because the ancient Maya were such incredible timekeepers. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And I, I couldn't find anything that was related to a god of time. So I created a goddess of time. And I always give the deities new roles. So I do play with that. I do take some artistic license. Yeah. Okay, what about the next question? All right, this is from John David BV, fifth grade, Bangkok, Thailand. And what is- Hello, my name is John David. I live in Bangkok. I have a question. What was the greatest disappointment in your career? Thank you. Well, that is a small <laughs> 20 seconds each. Yesenia, <laughs> you want to start with that one? <laughs> oh. oh. They're asking such tough questions these days. <laughs> but um, I think the biggest disappointment in my career might have been, and it's not like, I wouldn't say it's like a complete disappointment because things did turn on, but when I had a tweet go viral for this hashtag that was happening on Twitter called Drawing a Little Black, 
I think my greatest disappointment there was not really capitalizing on it initially, like capitalizing on so many eyeballs on my work from the get. I mean, ultimately it worked out since a publisher did hold on to my information and reached out like a month later. But between that month, I felt like I should have done more, but I didn't because I was a little, a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> That's understandable. Ruth? Um. Yeah, that's it's a very hard question. It's such a philosophical question. <laughs> but um, I guess I would say I wrote an entire novel that I spent many, many, many years on and then just decided it, it wasn't there, that it wasn't good enough to publish. And I have it, you know, as we say in Spanish, engavetado, you know, it's it's in a gaveta, it's in it's in a drawer. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever publish it, but um, but I was very disappointed after many, many years, many summers that I would work on it in between teaching, and it was so important to me. And then I just couldn't quite get it right after many, many rewrites, so I just had to shelve it. So that's that's a disappointment, but but I, I feel that maybe that's how I practiced writing <laughs> and maybe that writing that you know didn't get published helped me write the things that did get published well and you never know right and you never know you never know david yeah no i mean uh, most of my disappointments have eventually led to something positive and i've been able to like undo them so like one of my biggest disappointments was um, self-publishing before i because i wasn't able to like break in and so in the late in the around 2009 I self-published um, some science fiction books that like just didn't go anywhere. You know, uh, self-publishing was in its infancy at the time, and I didn't know what I was doing as far as promotion or whatever. And so I kind of thought that those three books that I published and, and I had an idea for the fourth to finish the series would just like were just gone because like who's going to ever republish these books, these unsuccessful books? But recently they have been acquired, and and so and that science fiction series is going to come out next year. Yeah, and I'm okay. super happy for it because it's like you know, BIPOC futurism that features like, you know, a world 700 years from now where, you know, whiteness is not the dominant paradigm anymore. And so, I mean, like a, a universe in which it's not. Um, and then also just getting, you know, rejected so many times for that, for the smoking mirror, like ridiculous. And then for it to be published and be like wildly successful and, and you know, get the put up right author honor and, and, and like basically, made the small press that printed it like have to revolutionize the way they distributed things because it, it was it became their flagship uh, title that was a really good thing but i mean the the disappointment of everybody rejecting you for years and years and years it's really hard to get past that but if you can um you come in on the other side stronger and and better prepared for life yeah and and you are not the first author to experience that i promised <laughs> But I do want to say, we have time for one more question, but I do want to say to the young readers and writers and dreamers out there that everyone gets rejected and everyone faces disappointment. It's just what we do with that disappointment that changes the outcome. So, um, okay, we have one last question. Gosh, the time has flown. And this is from Zoe N, fifth grader, Bronx, New York. What do you like about your books? I love that. <laughs> All right, why don't we start with David this time? Uh, what I like about my books is that they're able to um, show a world in which people like me and my family members 
um, uh, live lives that are full of dignity and joy and ups and downs, trials and tribulations, but that shows them as just like truly human in every sense of the word. Um, and, and to me, that just makes me really, really happy. I love that. Yesenia? So what I like about my books are that they show, you know, people that look like me or, you know, people that look like my family members in a much more positive light than most media does, you know, that we aren't just stereotypes that we can, you know, have our own adventures and, you know, live in worlds that are just filled with, you know, bright and bold colors. Couldn't agree more. Ruth? Nice. Yeah, um, well, I like the fact that they are finished. <laughs> um, the, the, the hardest thing is to write a book, but when it's finished, that's such a great feeling. So, so I'm glad they're done. You know, I'm glad they're done and they're out there and they exist and that stories that I carried around for a long time, I don't have to carry them now myself. I have other people to carry them with me, have other people reading them and talking about them. So that's kind of a good feeling, kind of that your story shared with other people, kind of the weight of that story is now shared with other people. And I'm glad that I was able in the two books so far, I've been able to honor uh, family that I really loved, a grandmother that I really loved, um, other other family that, that I'm so grateful to and, and community as well that was there for me. So I'm glad that I'm able to honor all those people um, that are so meaningful in, in the books I've written. Yeah, the creator is wonderful, isn't it? I agree. Well, thank you all. I appreciate your um, very forthcoming answers. I learned a lot. This is one of my favorite topics. David knows that. Um, and I'd like to thank everyone for attending the Latinx and Math um, panel at the first ever Latinx Public Book Festival. <laughs>